it is it really is fitting that uh, we would give praise to God for the addition of little Lucas to the Shoemaker family and the addition of little Lucas to our church family, because um, clearly God is adding to our numbers, and so we're doing it kind of the missional way and the old-fashioned way. So I, I'm good with both, both taking place here. Uh, it's, it's fitting that uh, we would give thanks to God for uh, little Lucas because uh, this weekend and today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, it's, it's a time where we celebrate the fact that kids are a blessing. For those of us with slightly older kids, we tend to forget that. They are a blessing. Dare we say that uh, a child is a new mercy. It's just another blessing, another mercy that God gives to us. And uh, I say that very specifically, new mercy, because I like to theme up our year, and just spiritually speaking, for our church, I want us to grow in the idea and the promise that God gives us new mercies. That's our theme for 2019. So in the book of Lamentations, if we've quoted these verses the last couple of Sundays, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. So what I want for us in 2019 is for us to live every day with the understanding and the assurance that God is, in fact, the God of new mercies and that he fills each and every day with brand new mercies. Like, I would love for that to be our perspective. For us to actually view our life through the lens that God is the God of new mercies, that every day there are new blessings, and every day there are new gifts, and every day there are new challenges, and every day there are new opportunities to grow in our faith and to live for the glory of God and to live for the good of others and, and all of that good stuff. I, I want us this year to take a step, a bold and a profound step in learning to trust that God gives daily new mercies. Because each and every day is difficult. We get a little bit older, and then we wake up with a new pain and a new hurt. Or something happens at work. Something happens with a child, a loved one. So to live with the perspective and the understanding and trusting that God will get me through this day, that he gives me more than enough grace and mercy and love and uh, power just to get me through the day. And for us to actually learn to live in expectation of new mercies, this is next level. I would love for us to go to bed at night and we can't sleep because we are so excited about the new mercies that God has in store for us the next day. Every night going to bed like it's Christmas Eve and the next day is Christmas Day. As if God is like going to unveil these new mercies because he is because he's promised to do so. So, I do believe that for us to begin to look for new mercies, because some of us aren't even doing that, right? We're not necessarily looking for them every day. For us to even begin to look for God's new mercies, to begin then to enjoy God's new mercies, and to then be actually grateful for these new mercies, I actually do think that we need to grow in our understanding of what mercy is to begin with. And one of the ways to really learn what something is is by learning what the opposite is. So a lot of us may actually say um, that we're grateful for our daily bread. And to some degree, we are. But 
to a very big degree, I wonder if we really are as grateful as we should be because you don't ever, you aren't ever really deeply appreciative for something until you're without it, right? Until you actually go hungry, and I'm talking about true hunger. I don't mean I miss my afternoon snack. I don't mean hungry. I need a, a hangry. I need a Snickers bar type stuff. I mean where we've gone days or weeks like some people in the world where they literally are starving, like true, genuine hunger. Like you don't, you're not ever really going to be grateful for what you have until you go without. So I just know this from practical experience. So me and Jamie had these four little ones in our house, nine, seven, five, and three. Lord, help us. And every day, it's like little birds in a nest. Chirp, 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 chirp. Hungry, 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 hungry. Like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And so they go to the refrigerator. It's full of food. They go to the pantry. It's full of food. I'm hungry. And what do they always say? There is nothing to eat. There's three boxes of three different cereals, but there's nothing to eat. Jamie goes through the painstaking labor of providing dinner. She sits in front of them. And what do they start doing? griping and complaining. That's yucky. I don't want that. Which shows us two things. One, they're not really all that hungry, and clearly they're not really all that appreciative. Because if they were genuinely, truly hungry, they would rejoice in what was provided. Well, it's, I, I do believe it's the same way when it comes to God's mercies. It's, it's hard for us to fully appreciate God's mercies unless we know what mercy actually is. It's hard for us to enjoy them and thrive in them, look for them, if we don't know what the opposite is, if maybe we've never gone without mercy, if, we've never, if we don't know that we have a lack of it in our lives. So that's kind of where I'm, I just want to set that up this morning. If you have your Bible with you, and I always hope that you do, please open up to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, Old Testament. It's between the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel. And uh, if we don't have a Bible, we will have the verses on the screen. If you don't own a Bible after the worship service, stop by the info table, grab one of these. That is our free gift to you because we want everyone to have their own copy of God's Word. So please take us up on that. Grab one on the way out if you, if you don't have one. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Lamentations, and I, I just think that for those promises and those verses that I quoted a while ago, his love never ends, his mercies never end, they're new every day, all day. For those promises to actually have their full impact upon our soul, we may need to spend some time understanding the context in which those promises are given. Make sense? They don't just exist out there as an island unto themselves. There's a reason why those verses were given. There's a reason why those promises were given. So I want to just kind of roll back a little bit and see what the landscape was in which God spoke those incredible, wonderful words that we sing in songs and that we quote all day and we have bumper stickers about. So here we go. Book of Lamentations. Um, my guess is, I'm not going to ask you to do this, if I asked everyone to raise their hand, have you ever heard a sermon from the book of Lamentations? My guess is that not a single hand would go up in this room. And there is a reason why. Because most pastors are smart enough not to attempt to do such a thing. This, this book that we're in this morning, it is as depressing as it gets. 
and I don't mean just simply in the Bible. I'm talking about in the universe. There are few books, if any, that are as depressing as the book of Lamentations. I mean, even the title, what does Lamentations mean? Weeping, sorrow, grief, awfulness. So here we are this morning because your pastor's a glutton for punishment. I'm trying to get all the jokes in at the beginning because here, once we get into this text, there's no jokes to be had. Uh, I'll go so far as to say this. If you ever find yourself like in a really, really inordinately crazy good mood, like over the top, through the roof kind of a mood, read Lamentations. It'll, it'll settle you down. Settle down now. Like it'll bring you back down to earth. If you ever find yourself in a really, really low, depressed, life is awful, life is stink, life stinks spot, read the book of Lamentations. Because I promise you, you're going to be like, my life ain't as bad as it was for those people. And it'll actually perk your spirits up a bit just by comparison. So there, there's value to be had from here. So the book of Lamentations is short. It is so short. It's five chapters. Just five chapters. And each chapter is a poem. There are five different poems describing what life was like in Israel during the, during the 580s BC. So here, here's the, the landscape. In 597 BC, the Babylonian Empire began a 10-year-long assault upon Jerusalem. So for 10 years, there's a campaign. They just keep attacking Jerusalem for 10 years. And finally, in 587 B.C., uh, Babylon just dealt this final death blow to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem falls. The city is looted. The city is destroyed. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are put to death. They are exiled. They are enslaved. Some of them go running out of the country. It is a bad scenario. It is war and the aftermath of war, destruction, death, all of that. And that's the setting in which this book is written. It is in the wake of destruction that we have the words in the book of Lamentations. So chapter 1, verse 1, it begins to set the, the, the scene here. It says, how lonely sits the city. Like right off the get-go, lonely. Lonely sits this city that was once full of people and now is empty. Lonely, empty. This is how the book begins. How like a widow has she become. Sorrow, grief, lament. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She was that, but now she's weeping. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a what? A slave. That's just setting up how much despair there is in this land at this time. I mean, put yourself in those shoes. You're, you're a citizen of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the capital of God's people. It's a thriving metropolis. Everything is wonderful. Things are prospering. And the next day, you're a slave. The city is empty. The city is in ruins. In chapter 1, verse 11, it actually tells us that the people are starving. 
The people are starving. It, it actually tells us in the book of Lamentations that it was preferable for those who died at the edge of the sword than for those who survived the sword and then had to like live in the midst of the aftermath of starvation in post-war Jerusalem. So it is clearly a bad time to be an Israelite. And you got to consider that they are God's people at the time, right? God's people. They were supposed to be enjoying a good home in a land flowing with milk and honey. They're supposed to be enjoying the good life under the protection of God's banner. All that went away. I mean, it took an ugly, ugly turn here in history. Why? Why would something so awful happen? And, and I'll be honest with you, like I was thinking through that, and that's really a dangerous question for us to ask. And it's dangerous because I wonder if we really want to know the answer to a question like that. We may not like the answer as to why this is happening. Folks, what we're seeing so far and what you would see in the rest of this book it's what life without mercy looks like. The point of this book is to show us what life without God's blessing, without God's protection, without God's provision, what it looks like. And chapter 1, verse 5, tells us why mercy has been removed. It's because God's people had turned, and it tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 5, it's on account of the multitude of their transgressions. So not just a sin here or there, not like a little thing here or there, the great abundance of their sins against God. And then in Lamentations chapter 1, in verse 8, it says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, willingly, deliberately, over and over, abundantly, they gave themselves over to sin. What, what was happening in history is that the people chose to serve sin rather than to serve the good God who loved them. They gave themselves over to it, and as a result, God gave them over to their sin. In essence, he removed his mercy off of his people. This shows us what judgment looks like. That's the opposite of mercy. Where there is no mercy, there is only judgment. And I, I recognize that this is not a topic that is very popular in today's culture. I, I, I get it. I, I, I talk to enough people I under, in, inside and outside the church. I get it. It is not a popular thing because most of the people that I run into if they even begin, have a concept of God to begin with, their concept of God is always God is simply love. That's the preference. And I understand why. I get it. Like what most people desire in, in their view of God is simply to make God out to be an inflatable in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. You know, cute, fluffy, tethered and controlled. That, that's how man, that's how we want to create God in that image. 
All right, so I, I, I understand what, why this rubs people the, right, the, the wrong way. Our, our society is way too enlightened. Right? Many people would say things such as, our, our society, our culture has moved on from such archaic, fundamentalist notions of a God that would be a God of judgment, that God would be a God of wrath, or that God ever exercises anything remotely looking like righteous anger. We, haven't we evolved past certain notions? But regardless of how that makes us feel, the truth is the truth. And the truth is the truth whether we decide to believe the truth. The truth is not dependent on whether we believe it or not. So regardless of how it makes us feel or how uncomfortable it may make us, the fact and the truth is that God is in fact holy and that he is in fact a God of judgment. Now, real quick, I'm going to ask you all, and again, I don't know everyone in the room. I don't know where you are. I don't know what your relationship with God is, if it's at all there, if you've ever read the Bible. I don't know. And it's between you and the Lord. But if you're here and you're, you're new to Anthem or it's the first time and you're like, what have I stepped into? Like this guy's talking about God's righteous anger and he's judging. I'm going to ask you one thing. Bear with me for the next 30 minutes. Because in just a little bit, I'm actually going to show you why what I just said will be, in fact, the most beautiful thing that your heart could ever want to hear. Does that even make sense? God is just and judge and righteous and, and can get angry, and he's a God of wrath. How in the world could that be the most beautiful thing that my heart ever hears? So if you'll allow me, Give me some space, and I promise you that I will get there. But before I get there, I, I want to do a little bit of work, and I want us to actually get a really good sense of what life without God's mercy looks like. And I'm just going to use the text to paint the picture. So look at Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to just spend the rest of our time in chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2 says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. So chapter 3 is written, um, the sufferings of the people are described through the experience of one man, right? So in the other places, it's the city, the people, here is it, the the poet is using the experience of one man to describe how life was in Israel during this time. And so from this man's vantage point, God's favor has been driven away. God's goodness is not to be found. It has been driven away. And it's been replaced with affliction. So that means trouble, tribulation. So mercy has been replaced with judgment. As a result, basically what's being described here is what life is like once it's enveloped with darkness. So the picture in, in 3, 1 and 2 is despair. This is what life looks like when there is no hope. I can't find God. I can't see God. I don't see anything good. All I see is wretchedness and awfulness. 
All right. Verse 3 then adds something that we need to understand if life is going to make any sense in this world. Verse 3 says, Surely against me he, and he is referring to God, Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. So here, this one man through whom we're supposed to see God's people, Israel, he is saying, God himself has turned his hand against me. In other words, God opposes those who oppose him. God opposes the proud. Like we see this in scripture over and over again. God is opposed to those who oppose him. Who likes them some pound cake? Yeah. I'm talking, I love, I'm talking about fresh bait. I got people, I got people's attention now. I, I don't care about icing. I don't care about frosting. I don't, I mean, I just want some straight up pound cake, maybe a little bit of whipped cream, some strawberries. You know what I'm talking about. All right. It's almost lunchtime. Well, imagine that one day, those of you who are like-minded with me that like some pound cake, imagine you're like, I've got a hunkering and I want a slice of good homemade pound cake. And it just turns out that you've got Granny's secret award-winning recipe. You've got the recipe, and you go through your pantry and the cut, and you've got all the right ingredients. You've got it all there. So, man, you you mix it up, pour the contents into the bump pan, you set the oven at the prescribed temperature, you put the the bunt pan in there, you, you, it's the right amount of time that you're going to leave it in there, and I, you're getting excited. Because who wouldn't? I'm getting excited now. <laughs> you're getting excited, and then it's time. I mean, you take out the cake. But you look inside, and instead of it rising the way that it should, imagine that it pulverized into a powder akin to something like sawdust, dry and coarse and chalky. Now, because we're Americans and we're not quitters, <laughs> we take a spoon because, well, I'm, it's going to at least taste like it, right? And you take a spoon and you just dig in and you put it in your mouth. But in this scenario, you are horrified. Because what it tastes like is as if someone took the contents of a dip cup, a tobacco spit cup, mixed in, mixed in some mule droppings, and added some kale. (laughs) And in that combination, we know which of the three is the bad one, don't we? Would, would, you, would you be opposed to that cake? You better believe you would be opposed to that cake. Why? Because that cake is living, working, acting in opposition of your desires. It's, it's acting in opposition of the purpose for which it was made. It is 
operating in a, in a manner that opposes its purpose. There is no joy in that bump pan. It just causes an offense. Well, we people, humans, we have been made, created by God. So God is this master baker. And he has a hunkering for people. And so he makes us unique, created us in his image and his likeness for his joy and for his glory. Like he specifically made us in his image and likeness, which simply means that we were made to reflect the character in the glory of God. He made us in such a way that we're supposed to be mirrors in this world. So when he sees us, he's supposed to see himself. But then sin enters the equation. We sin and do all this stuff. Sin is the complete opposite of everything that we were created for. It is the complete opposite of our purpose. It is the opposite of the reason that we are here. So God isn't annoyed by our sin. God is offended by our sin because our sin is simply us living in opposition to him. The same way that that ugly, nasty cake that I just described would be in opposition to us and therefore we would be opposed it. In the same way, our sin is us in opposition to God. And by definition, he then has to be in opposition to us. Does that make sense? Does that point the, the, or paint the picture of what I'm trying to say here, that God opposes those who oppose him? So the warning in the Bible is, that then God does do this, that he does act in a manner against those who are against him. So unlike us, who would instantly spit out that cake and throw it in the trash, God is not so quick to respond that way. It actually tells us in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger. Praise God. Praise God that he's so patient, that he's so long-suffering. And I don't mean like a week or a month. In the story that we're in, God had warned Israel 600 years prior to the book of Lamentations. He warned them in Leviticus 26, verse 17. He said, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. He warned them in Leviticus, if you turn against me, I will turn against you. And so what's been going on for centuries here is God basically trying to get their attention. Like, it's amazing. Like, as soon as God brought them out of captivity in Egypt and he led them across the wilderness and they entered the land flowing with milk and honey, it's amazing. I mean, they, they instantly just started drifting away. Like, it took no time. It took no time. They started drifting away from God. And this goes on century after century after century. And God very lovingly, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet trying to get the people's attention and warned them. And sadly, generation after generation, it just gets from bad to worse to worse to worse. So we praise God that he is, in fact, slow to anger. But guess what? Slow to anger doesn't mean that he never gets there. 
the fact that I think sometimes we say, oh, praise God, he's slow to anger. I think sometimes we mean that he never gets angry. But that's not what that phrase actually says, is it? He is slow to anger, which means that eventually he will reach a posture in which he then is righteously angry. And, and it's really important for us to know, because when we hear that word anger, we hear something extremely negative. And for most of us, when we experience anger and when we lash out in anger, it's typically wrong and bad and sinful. Because our anger is extremely selfish and self-centered and self-righteous, right? So when we're angry, it's usually not for good reasons or to a good end. That's not the case with God. God's anger is good. God's anger is righteous. God's anger is holy. And it is that anger that brings us here to the book of Lamentations. So what he did is that he raised up an enemy the Babylonian Empire, he raised them up, and this empire then attacks Jerusalem, and the city is destroyed. Now, it's not just that the city is destroyed. There's something in the city that's also destroyed that's of extreme importance. The temple, the temple of God, also known as the house of God, is in that city, and it's laid to waste. Well, in the temple, the inner chamber of the temple is also known as the Holy of Holies. That is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. So I'm dating myself, but if you know Indiana Jones, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful, ornate, gold-covered box. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were three items. There were the tablets that were inscribed with the Ten Commandments. There was a jar full of manna. And there was Aaron's staff. And you know that all three of those items, there's a reason why all three were in the Ark of the Covenant. All three of them actually represent Israel's sin. All three are emblematic. They're, they're, they are symbols of guilt and shame. So they were put inside the Ark. Well, the ark had a lid, a top on it, known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat covered the sins of Israel. So the, the mercy seat, because it covered sin, so sin was kind of shunned from God, it represented God's blessing. The mercy seat represented God's presence. The mercy seat was emblematic of God's grace, of his forgiveness, and of his mercy. So the unthinkable takes place in 587 BC when the temple is destroyed, because guess what else happened that day? The ark went missing, and it's been gone ever since. That's the last anyone ever saw the ark. So the ark is gone. Guess what that means? No more mercy seats. That day in Jerusalem, what made it such a terrible day is that the removing of the mercy seat meant God was lifting his mercy off and away from the people. And that's why everything is so awful in the, the book of Lamentations. The people are sinning and sinning and sinning, and he's trying to get them to straighten up, and they won't do it, they won't do it. So God said, if that's what you want, I'm just going to hand you over to what it is that you want. 
Um, therefore, I'm removing my mercy, and where there is no mercy, there is by definition only judgment. So then let's, let's look at this bleak situation in the city. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 5. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. Sound pleasant? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that I want to be enveloped in bitterness. Verse 7. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. This was a, a torture and an in, um, execution practice back in that, that region of the world during that time. They would take a person, take a bunch of stones, and basically wall them up in a tomb. Like they would bury them alive, standing up in a confined space until they died. So he's using that, that analogy there to say what it is that he's experiencing and what the people are experiencing during this time. In verse 8, I mean, just look at verse 8. Basically, prayers, there are these cries of anguish that just kind of seem unheard. Just crying out, and it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. Verse 11, it says, He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Verse 14, I have become the laughingstock of all people's the objects of their taunts all day long. I mean, it's bad enough to be without hope. It's bad enough to be physically battered, like under execution. It, I mean, it's bad enough to be enveloped by bitterness to throw on top of that the insults and the mocking of other people laughing at you for your plight. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood, meaning he has given me to drink or he has filled my stomach with that which is bitter, with that which is sour. And in verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Folks, can, can it get any worse for someone? To get to the point spiritually and emotionally, I don't even know what, it, what it's like to laugh anymore. It's been so long. It's been so long since I've had any joy. I don't even remotely remember what it's like to have joy in my life. Folks, that is precisely what judgment looks like. That is precisely what life without the mercy of God looks like. And it's there. It's right there in the midst of that darkness that light shines. It is right there in that context where we read words of hope on a dime. The writer is, it's awful, it's terrible, it's hopeless, it's awful, it's darkness. And on a dime, look at verses 21 through 23. But this I call to mind, this I will remember, and therefore I will have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Folks, we can live with hope because God offers love. When we mess up, you know what God offers? 
compassion. When we turn away from God, do you know what he offers? A way back to him. The new mercy that we see here is the very reality that God every day gives us an opportunity to turn from our sin and repent and turn to him. That's the new mercy. That's the new mercy that he gives to us all the time. The great mercy is that if you're here today and you're the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter, God is the father waiting for you with open arms. He said, let's hug it out. That's the message here. In the worst of it, God is saying, you know what? When you are unfaithful, I am faithful. That's why we can live with hope. That's why we can live as if there's goodness today, as if there's going to be goodness tomorrow, because there is a, a good God that offers grace and love and compassion and mercy, and he does it in a gentle way, and he's slow to anger, and he's patient. Is that good news? Is that good news? So we're often going to find ourselves throughout our lives in these dark seasons. We're going to walk through all sorts of valleys of the shadow of death. We're going to face all kinds of affliction and hardship in, in our life. And some of the difficulties that we'll endure are simply the fact that we live in a broken world. Everything in this world is broken or it's about to break. Okay? So because of that, we're going to go through some bad stuff. There's going to be bad that comes our way. Oftentimes, no fault of our own. It's just we live in a broken world. You can be perfect. You can be sinless and still face calamity. And if you're not sure about that, just ask Jesus. Okay? So just know, if you're here this morning and you're right now in the middle of a season in life where things aren't going well, it may not have anything to do with you. It's just that we live in a broken world. But these verses tell us God loves you. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's merciful. So if that's you today, would you just grab on to that? Would you just let your heart in faith grab on to, to Christ? Uh, years ago, um, I, won't, I don't have time to go into the story, but it was back 2003 or something like that. It was, no, 2006. It was like the worst nine months that I personally had ever experienced. And I just had a visual in my head every day. I got, for whatever reason, this is just what I pictured in my mind, like Jesus walking down a street of Jerusalem or something like that, like cobblestone, you know, rocks and stuff. And then I'm like laid out, like grabbing onto his robe. And he's, but he just keeps walking. So he's dragging me right? And I'm bouncing and I'm hitting myself all over the place. But I remember it's like, and that's what life felt like. I'm getting thrown and bounced and hurt and, and all this kind of stuff. But Jesus, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. So that's what I'm asking you. If you find yourself in one of these seasons in your life, would you just grab onto Jesus? Like, he's good. He's kind. He loves me. He's powerful. He's, he's wise. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. And let your heart grab hold of him. That being said, there are times that we may go through in our life, dark seasons that we will go through, that are because God has set his hand against us. And the reason he has done such is because we have set ourselves against him. Okay? 
And I'm not referring to a situation where, oops, I cut someone off in traffic. Or I just got, got mad and just said something bad that I mean that I shouldn't have one time. Because God isn't spiteful like that. He doesn't just, he doesn't throw the hammer just because we mess up one or two times here or anything like that. I mean, that God is way, way slow to anger, okay? I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to a scenario where there's a sin that we keep sinning. We know it's a sin. We do it over and over again. We do it willingly. We do it intentionally. We know better, but we keep doing it anyway. That's what I'm referring to. And I don't mean a week, a month. Like, I mean, this has been going on for a while. And so what we have to know is that if that is what's happening, is that we have, in essence, then set our lives in opposition to God. And if we have done that, God in love is going to then interject himself and try, begin the process of getting our attention to to speak to us, to reason with us, to shepherd us. And he's going to do it through a bunch of different means. Like God works miraculously, like he'll speak through a sermon, a Bible study, through a friend. I mean, there's all sorts of avenues. And God will start kind of putting on the pressure there. So in very ways, God will start doing this. But if we don't listen and we just keep going down this path, eventually he's going to oppose us. Eventually, he's going to begin to turn up the heat so that we may turn back to him. Eventually, he's going to replace mercy with judgment. And let me ask you, is that not what a loving father does? I mean, is that not what a good mother does for a child? Like they they see them going the wrong direction and they're going to fall off the cliff and it's like, I'm trying to help. Like, is that not what a loving father does? So in the book of Haggai, it's interesting because What's happening in Lamentations is the temple was destroyed. In the book of Haggai, God tells him to rebuild the temple. He tells him to rebuild. And for 20 years, they drag their feet. 20 years go by, and they're not rebuilding the way they're supposed to. And the reason they're, not go, they're doing it is that it tells us that they're more concerned about their paneled homes. In other words, they're more concerned about their comforts and their vacations and their this and their that and their toys. And they're saying, God, uh, we're all about the temple so long as our stuff is square. Once we get our stuff squared, then we'll be all about you. So they care more about the things of the world than the things of God. And so what God tells them in Haggai chapter 1 verse 6 he says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so, put them into a bag with holes. What God tells them in Haggai chapter 1, the reason life is so hard for you it's because my hand is actually working against you. The reason everything feels like an uphill battle is because it is. I'm making sure that it is an uphill battle. And, and I don't want to be misunderstood today at all. Just because something bad or awful or just because you're in one of those seasons, I am not saying that it's because you've been such an awful, dreadful sinner and that there's something you've got to give over. I don't know. Bad things happen in this world. Spiritual warfare is real. We are surrounded by a bunch of sinners, and they're surrounded by us. There is a lot of bad that we do to each other, and it just happens in this world, okay? But if you do find yourself in one of these times and seasons where 
all my appliances are breaking and all my cars are breaking and all my finances are in disarray and I can't, I just can't get out of this hole no matter what I do. I took on a third job and I still can't get out of this. What is going on? If all of your relationships are just strain and stress and it's just drama and gossip and all this stuff, if, if your health or even in your family, if it's just constant, I'm just asking you, that it would be a wise thing to humble yourself and just come before God. Say, Lord, am I missing something here? Is there something in my life that I have given myself over to that I need to confess and turn away from and replace with the right behavior? Now, some things are obvious. We know if we're committing adultery. Like, you know, you know if you are addicted to a substance or addicted to something. Like, you know. But folks, quite frankly, there's a lot of stuff that is sinful that is in our blind spot, and you're, we're not even aware of it. So my, my point really is if you find yourself in one of these seasons of life where everything is a lot harder than it should be, and it's hard because life is hard, but like, man, I just cannot, I can't make any progress. It might be that God is opposing you because there's a sin in your blind spot. And if that's the case, talk to someone. And I don't mean a yes man. And I don't mean your cheerleader girlfriend. And we all have those friends that will say, hey, is this sinful? Oh, no, darling, bless your heart. No, that's all good. God understands. And you're laughing because it's true. I'm not talking about those friends. I'm talking about a Christian who is willing to say, you've actually, yeah, you know what? I've been noticing this pattern in your life. And you're going to be like, no, that, no, that's not me. And you're like, no, it is. And to be humble enough and willing to be honest in that moment to let a person speak truth into your life for your own good, and ultimately for the glory, for the glory of God. So I'm coming back, because earlier I said that the very idea and the truth and the notion that God is a God of judgment and a God of wrath and a God of righteous anger, that that may be or would be or should be the most beautiful thing that your heart ever hears, that God is holy that he has a righteous and holy character and that his character demands justice to take place. That by his very nature of who he is, that wrath has to pour out on account of sin. It has to. It can't be any other way. So how in the world is that the most beautiful thing our heart could ever hear? Here's why. Because God is willing to pour that wrath out on himself to spare us. To spare us. Folks, who is the man in Lamentations chapter 3? Is that not a description of Jesus Christ, the Son of God on the cross? Let me walk through these verses again real quick. In verse 1, look at verse 1. 
Is it not Jesus who endured the rod of God's wrath on the cross? Is that not a picture of Christ on our behalf? Look at verse 8. Is it not Jesus who on the cross cried out in prayer, a prayer that seemed to go unheard, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at verse 11. Was it not Jesus who was beaten and whipped and scourged? His body was torn in pieces. His body was broken. And there his friends left him desolate. His friends abandoned him. Verse 14, is it not Jesus who was mocked and ridiculed and humiliated and taunted? Did they not say, oh, you're the king of the Jews? And they formed a crown of thorns and shoved it upon his head just to mock him. Is that not Christ? And on verse, in verse 15, what did, what did Jesus say on the cross? I thirst. And as a final insult, you know what they gave him? Sour wine. He was sated with bitterness upon the cross. And then in verse 7, his body was taken off of that cross and walled up in a tomb. You know that death is the prison from which no one had ever escaped. But Jesus is not just anyone. Jesus is God Almighty. So when he did die, they put his body in that tomb. And on the third day, light shined in darkness. And his eyes opened up. He stood up and he walked out of that tomb. He is clearly our champion and our resurrected Lord. God is a God of wrath. He is a God of love. And in Christ, the two are satisfied. Jesus is the man in Lamentation 3. He's the one who endured ultimate affliction that we would be spared of everlasting affliction. He paid the penalty, the cost for our sin to break its yoke from, from our, our neck to free us. You know that we no longer have to do its bidding. It no longer controls us. If we are in Christ, he went to the cross to break us free from the power and the dominion of sin. He took our judgment upon us and he died our death that we may receive life everlasting. Folks, that's mercy. That's a, that is precisely what mercy is. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat through whom we receive all of God's blessings and all of God's presence in our lives. Jesus is the new mercy. It's him. And every day an opportunity to turn to him, to turn to him. And it's a gift. It is by grace through faith. This is not something we earn. This is not something we deserve. We simply reach out in faith. Our heart just grabs hold of Christ. We embrace the gospel. We hug it in and let it hug us. It is by grace through faith in the gift of Jesus Christ. You know, some, some will say some, that it's preferable to deny that God is a God of wrath and simply say that he's a God of love. Don't say that that's preferable. I would say that the truth is preferable, that the truth is supremely superior. My God is a God of wrath, 
And he loves me so much that he was willing to take it, to spare me. That's a better God than a God of just mere sentimentality. God who's holy and love, all intersecting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, how do you, how do you need to respond this morning? Like, where are you? Where are you? In your relationship with God, do you have a relationship with Christ? Israel took God's mercy for granted. Folks, let no one in here make that mistake today. Let no one make that mistake this morning. God's mercy today, his new mercy today, is an opportunity to repent. Whether it's for the first time, I have never accepted the gospel this is it. I'm stepping in. If that's you, praise God. Step into mercy. If you have done that in the past, but you, maybe you've given yourself over to a sin or something has a hold of you, today is a new mercy to turn from that. Confess it. God, I'm addicted to that. I've been doing this. I've been ignoring it. I've been ignoring your warning. I'm done with it, Lord. I want to turn to your grace and your power to give me strength to overcome this today. So how do you need to respond? And I'll say this, that to receive God's mercy, you got to let go of the things of the world. You can't grab onto it if your hands are full of sin and your hands are full of the things of the world. you got to let go of that stuff so that you can grab on. And if you want to receive God's mercy, you have to give yourself to God's mercy. Give yourself to Christ. Follow him. It's not just believing it's the kind of belief that results in following. That's real faith. So where are you today? What's the condition of your life? If God said evaluate your life, your day, your, your ways, what's the reality? Do you feel his opposition? Are you in a season of mercy or perhaps a season of judgment? Either way, folks, today is a day of new mercies. So as we do every week, I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes and bow your head and just enter into a time of personal response. The gospel has been preached. God's word has been proclaimed. And I believe that means that there is a choice for all of us to make and a step to take. As you're just reflecting, know this. God wants you to walk in his daily new mercies, to walk in his power, to walk in his presence, to walk in his gifts, to walk in his grace every day. And to do so is way better than not. And if you're here, it's like, I have so much sin in my life. As I always say, you cannot out the grace of God but you have to grab it. You have to reach for it in faith. So what is it that God is calling you to do today? I'm going to ask the praise team to go ahead and start singing our closing song. And you can stay seated with your eyes closed and keep praying. You can stand and sing. For some of us, it might mean today for us to actually just walk out come forward and take a knee up here just as an act of humble repentance before God. I'll be up here on my knees.
if anyone wants to join me, but what would God ask you to do today? Thank you, Lord, that you do love us, that you are gracious and kind and slow to anger, that you do not leave us lost in a pit of despair, but that you make yourself available And you did so by sending your son to give us new life, Lord. So I pray that we would walk in newness of life by grace through faith, Lord. Pray that we would be people of grace and kindness, people who reflect your character and your glory in this world, Lord. That we would tell everyone this incredible and wonderful news of your love and your new mercies. And Lord, as we step forth from this place, I pray for your blessing and your keeping. Lord, use us as your instruments in this world. Lord, further your gospel in us and through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.